Alright, so if you are like me this morning, you are recovering. <laughs> if not for Thanksgiving, at least the game that we watched yesterday, you are recovering, okay? But particularly Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving can be a tough season. It's a tough season for many. And I'm glad to say that I really enjoyed my family gatherings. I had two. I had a sort of tour of the Midwest. But I am also aware, I'm very much aware, that for many, Thanksgiving is a forced family gathering. This onion headline says it all. 95% of opinions withheld on visit to family. And look at the picture of that guy right there, okay? So for many of you, that was you at Thanksgiving. And if your folks are here, then I'm sorry. But this is a forced family gathering, what you see behind me. Like your office Christmas party, too often family gatherings are just that. They're forced. They're a forced gathering. And you're asking yourself, why am I here? Why gather? What is the point of gathering? Because there's nothing worse than a forced gathering. And trust me, I am fully aware, painfully aware, that church can feel like a forced family gathering. Church. This is whenever you ask yourself, why am I doing this? Why am I gathering? What again is the point? And whenever you ask yourself that question, and the best answer you have is, well, I guess I just have to, then church has in some ways become a forced family gathering. And that's painful. And that's awkward. And perhaps unsustainable. You know, it's interesting. We have in our, uh, in our Bibles an ancient book called, uh, it's in the New Testament, it's called Hebrews, and it was written to a first generation Christian church who started to see uh, the ch- uh, church and the church gathering as, as difficult to pull off. They started to see it almost as a forced family gathering so that Hebrews 10.25 says this, And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another. The, the author of Hebrews had to say to this ancient community, you, let us not stop gathering. We have to continue gathering. And you kind of wonder what is going on in this ancient church so that they were starting to not gather. So that they were starting to ask themselves, what is the point? Why gather? And we know from background and from context of Hebrews that for them, they didn't want to go to church. They didn't want to gather Because often that meant jail, or losing their job, or perhaps even their lives. And so they were doing a cost-benefit analysis in their mind and in their heart, and they were saying, you know what, this feels forced, I'm just not going to go. And the author of Hebrews was like, look, you've got to keep going. How are you going to survive as a follower of the way? How are you going to survive as a believer if you do not have a community that you are actually committing to and gathering with? For us, I recognize our struggle is not persecution. But maybe we're not sure that church matters anymore. Maybe we think, you know, I've been hurt by church, and so do I really need church? Is this absolutely required? I mean, I look at the Bible and I wonder, can I just meet with God individually by myself? Or perhaps you don't get along with your family members at church, your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
Or perhaps the vision at church isn't as compelling as it once was. There's all kinds of reasons why this church can feel like a forced family gathering. Very different reasons. The ancient church that Hebrews is addressing in our current day. But the same outcome. Think about it. Church can become a forced family gathering. Now, why am I saying this? Well, because I love what we just heard in this ancient book of Nehemiah. Because in Nehemiah, uh, this section shows in the words of one Old Testament scholar, all the signs of an unforced gathering. The church here, as we just read it, is enthusiastic about the vision. So if you look at verse 2 of chapter 11, you'll see some signs of enthusiasm. The first thing you see in verse 2 is that the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So there were many people who uprooted their way of life because of what was going on in Jerusalem. Because of the renewal that was happening. They were enthusiastic. They willingly, they they didn't begrudgingly sacrifice. They willingly sacrificed. Oh, it was costly, but it was a willing and joyful cost that they personally endured because of what was happening. The church is growing. I mean, so in chapter 11, if we had time to go through, we would see that the, the villages that are described here are basically the old ancient kingdom boundaries. And so what many people point out in verse in chapter 11 is that what is being described here is sort of a a taste of the ancient and glorious kingdom. When David and his son Solomon ruled and the boundaries were large and expansive, it was Israel, it was God's people at this time at their height. And what Nehemiah is suggesting is that the renewal that is happening Tastes and feels like the old kingdom. They're growing. And in chapter 12, it's just overflowing with leaders who came back because of what was going on. All the signs of an unforced gathering. That's what we see here. This is a church gathering that people want to go to. This is a Thanksgiving dinner that we all sort of are excited for. And so my question this morning is simple. What is going on? Right? What is going on here? What's happening? What can we as a church pray into and pray for so that the same would be true of us, not just now, but forever as a community? I see two things in our passage this morning that are taking place, that are evidences of renewal, that are taking place. And the one is this. It's the pursuit of holiness or or purity. You see that. And I'm going to explain these. And number two, and it's hard to miss, it's the gift of joy that God gives them. It's two gifts, really. It's the gift of holiness and it's the gift of joy. And sadly, these two things, holiness and joy, purity and joy, celebration, ruckus, laughter, 
singing. Sadly, these two things usually don't go together in a church setting. You have one or the other, but rarely do you have both. And I think what this text is going to challenge us in is that if you have one or the other, you really don't have them at all. Because in God's community, purity is always married to joy. And joy is always married to purity. So let's, talk, let's take a look and see how that, how that works. In fact, as I was studying this passage, I wrote down in my notes two words that I don't think I've ever written together in my life. Purity and party. <laughs> Purity and party. And that really is, and I think that really gets at this text. A healthy church pursues both. A healthy church is marked by both. So the healthy church pursues purity. Let's just take a look at that real quick. I mean, what we're looking at here in the text that we heard read aloud is the dedication of the walls. Do you remember? Nehemiah was all about the building of these walls that surrounded Jerusalem. And when Nehemiah comes onto the scene, they're destroyed. And he does this walk at the very beginning. Do you remember? He walks all the way around uh, these ancient walls that are fallen. They're, They're charred with fire. They're destroyed. They're rubble. And now here we are. The walls have been built. And they're walking around and they're dedicating these walls. Starting in verse 27. So just... Grab your Bible and look at verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem, to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And so that is the scene. And so imagine this. Imagine a church that has a building campaign, and they just built their building. What do you find, right? That's what's happening here. What do you find? Well, in verse 30, you see a pursuit for purity, almost a priority of purity. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. They didn't want to leave anything unpure, impure. Why? Why did they do this? Well, this is God's house. This is God's city. God is holy. God is pure. If you look at chapter 11, verse 1, Nehemiah doesn't even call this city Jerusalem. Nehemiah calls this city, what? Do you see it? The holy city. And then in verse 18, he calls Jerusalem the holy city. God is holy and pure. And so they understood that they were to pursue holiness, purity. And see, the Old Testament people of God, this is also very true. They knew that God was holy and pure, of course. And so they, if they were going to survive, they needed forgiveness. They needed covering. And so God gave them a sacrificial system, a sacrificial lamb to purify them in his presence. If you want to hear the story of the Bible, you could say it simply like this. The Bible is a story of God making home with the sinful people. And if God is completely holy and he moves into your neighborhood, there's a problem, isn't there? And so God in his grace, what he does, God in his grace is he, he makes it so that he can live near you. He wants to be near you. And so in the Old Testament, what he did is he gave his people a sacrificial system. He gave them a lamb. And he said, 
I'm going to move in and I know you're sinner. I'm going to call you to holiness, but I also know that you're not going to be holy as I am holy. Therefore, this lamb is going to take away the sins, the impurities. The blood of this lamb is going to make you clean. It's going to make you pure so that I can be near you. You see, it's grace. God's grace. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament, we tend to read Leviticus and we tend to think, oh my gosh, God was so like messed up back then. What is He doing? We have, to, we have to clear that away and we have to think to ourselves, no, that is actually amazing grace. God would move in to His sinful people and say, I'm going to make it possible that my holiness and your unholiness can be together. And it's through the blood of the Lamb. And of course, fast forward hundreds of years, and John, the Gospel of John, will say that Jesus, behold, is that Lamb of God. And so Jesus comes onto the scene, and He lives a life of perfect holiness. He was the only pure human being to ever live. And then He died like that Passover Lamb. He died like that sacrificial Lamb. He died so that His blood would make you pure and cover you once and for all. All of the Yom Kippur lambs that were slaughtered in your place in the Old Testament culminated in Jesus and now are no more. And so if your trust is in Jesus, you are pure. If you are united to Jesus, His life of purity, His death in place of your impurity, then you cannot become more pure. You cannot become less pure. You are clothed in His Righteousness. And so, a culture or a community or a church or a people that pursues purity is a church that's going to pursue Jesus, first and foremost, the pure Lamb of God. One of my favorite poems is by a 17th century pastor poet, George Herbert. Have you heard of this man? George Herbert. George Herbert, uh, in fact, nobody knew he was a poet. He was just a faithful pastor, pastoring a country church. But then when he died, they discovered his poems. And to this day, his poems are studied in university. They're studied everywhere. They're amazing poems. And all of them are worth reading, by the way. My favorite, probably my favorite poem of all time. Is called Aaron. Remember, Aaron is the great high priest. Aaron is the great high priest, the priest who is to be pure. Holiness on the head, light and perfections on the breast, harmonious bells below. So the priests wore bells on their garment. Raising the dead to lead them unto life and rest. Thus are true Aaron's dressed. Profaneness in my head. Defects and darkness in my breast. A noise of passions ringing me for dead. Unto a place where is no rest. Poor priest, thus am I dressed. Only another head I have, another heart and breast, another music making live, not dead, without whom I could have no rest. In him I am well dressed.
Christ is my only head, my alone, only heart and breast, my only music, striking me even dead, that to the old man I may rest and be in him new dressed. So holy in my head, perfect in light in my dear breast, my doctrine tuned by Christ who is not dead but lives in me while I do rest. Come, people, Aaron's dressed. The reality is, you are Aaron's dressed in Christ. Jesus is the true and perfect priest. What Aaron pointed to, Jesus is in fullness. And when you embrace Jesus, you are dressed in his perfectness, his purity. You may struggle in your life with thoughts like, I'm, I'm, I'm unclean. I know I'm forgiven. I believe that in my mind. I believe that that Jesus uh, died for my sins. I know that I'm forgiven. And in a sort of mathematical way, you're kind of like, I know I'm good with God by sort of gospel math. But what hasn't happened in your life and what needs to happen in your life is at the very core of your being, you need to realize that you are pure. You are clean. And then when God looks at you, he sees you dressed in Jesus and all of his cleanness. And so the shame that you have needs to be wiped away forever. And you have that in Jesus. I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says this to everyone who knows their impurity, but is trusting in the purity of Jesus. God has united you with Jesus Christ. I'm quoting scripture. This is God's word, not mine. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy. Christ made you pure and holy. And he freed you from sin. I want you to rest in that reality right now. And for the rest of your life. You are pure. The purity that we read of in verse 30 of Nehemiah 12. Is a shadow, a foretaste of the purity of the walking temple, Jesus himself. And you are connected to him in such a way that you are in him and he is in you. That is to say, you can't become purer than you already are in Christ. Isn't that amazing? And so I think two things should mark us as a church. We should always be pointing to Jesus. So a healthy church really rests in the purity of Jesus. The old word for this is repose. Repose. Repose is sort of that moment in life when, when uh, you've done this before, when you, when you rest, when you relax. I love this image. David Benner, he talks about floating in water. Have you ever floated in water before? He says there is a frantic effort sometimes where we try to float in water and all we do is sink. But do you remember that moment where you're like, wait, what if I just stop trying to float? And you sort of float. What's happening? You're resting. You're, there's a repose in your body. 
in your core. And what, what Jesus gives us as a church is that repose. We can finally rest. We can rest. We can relax. You know the Bible calls you a saint? The New Testament letters writes to the saints, and these aren't just super Christians. These are sinners like you and me. But they're in Christ. And so they're called saint. Because we are clothed in Jesus. And so a healthy church, a church that will not be forced, like a forced family gathering, is a church that rests in the purity of Jesus. That's, that's the key, folks. And then a healthy church pursues purity because of that repose. Let me just say, there's two ways to pursue purity. One is out of sort of an angst. Oh, I've got to get pure. I've got to get holy. Because God is holy. Another one is out of rest and repose. The difference is the difference between life and death. Because you will die pursuing holiness in your own strength. But when you know that you are pure in Christ... And suddenly you are freed up by the same Holy Spirit that makes you pure to pursue purity. And so you'll read the Bible and you'll see these calls to live a certain way. The big three, sex, money, and power. And you're going to see these big three things coming up time and time again. Uh, the New Testament letters we're going to, are going to talk about how the people of God, the church of God, are going to do life differently. We have a different sort of way of living. And so when we do that, uh, we're going to look at those commands and we're going to look at that call. And we are no longer going to think, if I do this, God will make me pure. Instead, we'll say, because I am pure, I now see the beauty of this call. And I will now walk in freedom into it. And that makes all the difference. And so we will be a, a church that pursues purity. But secondly, and this is important, a healthy church knows how to party. Okay? So most sermons stop there. Let's be pure, guys, and purity of Jesus. But what we, where we stop and where we should continue is to say, oh man, there's a lot of joy. There's a lot of celebration. There's a lot of singing. Because the bulk of the section that we just heard is not purity, but partying. Verses 27 through 29 show us that they called up all the best musicians from the land. They called them. They, they sort of commissioned all the best musicians. And then in verses 31 through 43, as we read, we have a parade of song around this newly built city. A party so raucous that would really put to shame the field rush that happened yesterday. Uh, and some of you were in it. I mean, right? Some of you, were you in that ruckus? Any of you rushed the field yesterday? Anybody? Be honest. Okay, no. You were maybe in your heart as you were watching the game. Uh, point is, that, that kind of ruckus, that kind of celebration, that kind of joy, really, that kind of joy, like that is counterfeit compared to what's happening in this text. So ruckus that in verse 43, joy is mentioned five times in one verse. In fact, it says... The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And I'm going to return to that verse because that verse really could be the mission of God's people in one line. When Josie and I got married, we wanted, uh, well, what we had to do is we had to budget because we had a set amount of money and we had to sort of figure out how we were going to spend that money. 
And so Josie's smart, and I'm kind of dumb. And so what happened is she's like, well, let's make a list of priorities. Like, well, that's a great idea. And so we started thinking, what are the things that we want to spend the most money on? And then let everything kind of fall down below that. And she said pictures, and I said music. And so we spent a lot of money on the band. And I spent a lot of time researching who this band is going to be. And we ended up bringing this entire big band up into our wedding. And they played a ruckus, celebrating night. And it was amazing. And really, that is the heart of God. He looks at his gathering of his people, which he describes as a marriage feast. And he says, you know where I'm going to put a lot of my chips? On the celebration party. On the band. That's what's happening in this text. That's what we see Jesus doing, who is the very face of God. I mean, Jesus was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. You don't get that accusation unless you know how to party. (laughs) He was without sin, so he wasn't getting drunk. He was without sin, so he wasn't a glutton. Oh, but he was hanging out with people that did, first of all, because he's Jesus. And number two, he had a levity to him. Why? Because he's God in flesh. And he wants to celebrate with his people. I read this obscure text in Nehemiah and I see the heart of God. Purity and celebration. That is the heart of God. A God who is holy and happy. Not a shallow happiness. Again, but a delight, a deep delight. So let me just say this as we close. Purity and partying are not at odds. Church needs to get better at throwing parties. We do. When we we have home groups, we should think, all right, we're going to throw a party. When we have dinner, even with our family or our friends, we're thinking, this is a party because of grace. The sort of overflowing, gratuitous gratitude, grace, the sort of, you know, think of the prodigal son story. The, The father in that story is just over the top. He really is. He runs, he hikes his, his robe, indiscreetly, I might add, and he runs towards them, and then he throws a huge feast. It's really, really sort of almost like immature. Some of you would be like, that's a waste of money and time, prodigal dad, you know? But he's really after it. Why? Because that is the gospel. That is the gospel. It's celebration. Oh, man. I think we get this wrong. I mean, it's Mencken who defined Puritanism as the fear that someone somewhere may be happy. That's Puritanism. And hear that word pure in there? And so what we have done is we've sort of equated purity with, uh, to use a phrase from Marilyn Robinson, priggishness. To be pure, to pursue purity, or to be in Christ, therefore pure, is to therefore be a prig. And I'm, I'm here to say that's unbiblical. I can't find that in the Bible. It's certainly not in Nehemiah. We we ought to be known for our levity. I like the word levity. Because times can be really hard and you can still have a levity to you. 
I mean, Paul, when he says, be joyful, be joyful, be joyful. He's in prison. Do you know that? He's, he's like in a terribly uncomfortable prison, and he has sort of a death sentence on him. And he has, a, he has a levity, he has a joy, it's sort of a gift from God. It can't come from him. And that's, that's what God gives us. That's what God gives us. I think verse 43 is very important. As I said earlier, if you take a look, I think verse 43 is so important. I mean, I think, I think verse 43 suggests that our joy is our best outreach. That our joy is really the best apologetic or defense of the faith. John Leonard writes this. He says, our Lord compares his kingdom and even heaven itself to a party, a feast. But we have turned that party into something not many people want to attend. Amen. So there's the forced family gathering. Jesus knew how to have fun at a party, how to. It's important to grace the people at whatever table he found himself at. The religious and non-religious. The righteous and the unrighteous. One as easily as the other. And so your job is to grace the socks off the non-believers around you. See, Israel's walls were not meant to be or they were not meant to exclude. I think verse 43 argues against that idea. The joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. This echoes so many of the Psalms which say, uh, you know, take joy in the Lord, all you nations. Okay, so what's happening there? What's happening there is God is saying, your mission as my people is to be heard. And your joy sort of come alongside the words of the gospel. And they will be a powerful witness to my character and who I am and what the gospel does. See, Israel's walls were never meant to exclude the walls of Jerusalem, demarcate sacred space, even protect. We've seen that. But they are never meant to exclude. And this is important because uh, the same is true of any church walls. They demarcate a space. We're certainly in a space this morning. They say we do life differently in here, symbolically. But they are never, hear this, to be used for exclusion. The ancient Celtic monasteries did this well. So unlike Roman monasteries uh, that were built far away, Celtic monasteries were built uh, in the city centers. And they had a boundary wall. And they called this boundary wall the Termon, the Termon. And this boundary wall was, was there, but it was not there to exclude. What was it there for? Well, in this great book called The Celtic Way of Evangelism, you learn, and I'm going to quote, the enclosure, or the termon, was to be a place free from all aggression. Now, why is that important? Because when the Celtic monasteries sort of dropped into these communities, uh, like I have Irish roots, so I'm just going to say this, like it was pretty brutal back then in those parts. Aggression was a way of life. Uh, and so these monasteries would set down, and they would have these walls, enclosures, termons. And this wall would be a place free from all aggression. 
violence was legally and absolutely excluded by this precinct. Monastic settlements were anticipation of paradise in which the forces of division, violence, and evil were excluded. Wild beasts were tamed and nature was recalibrated. The privileges of Adam and Eve in Eden, received from God but lost by the fall, were reclaimed inside these walls. The living out of this vision as an alternative world involved all the people who were brought within the enclosed space. Do you see it? The wall was not an exclusion. The wall was simply a boundary marker which said, in here, God is doing something unique and beautiful. And friends, that is our calling We are called to live out a vision of the alternative world that Christ brings us, ordered by the true and perfect Adam, the true and perfect Aaron, the true and perfect Nehemiah, the true and perfect temple. Galatians 5.22 tells us that we have his spirit, which gives us both holiness and joy. 